Welcome to the Internet of Assets, the podcast about the not-so-distant future of finance. My name is Ryan King, Head of Business Development at Dust Network, and every episode I dive into a specific part of finance, and we aim to do this in a maximum of 25 minutes. And in today's episode, we're thrilled to have Thibault Schrepel with us. Thibault is an Associate Professor of Law at VU Amsterdam and a faculty affiliate at Stanford University CodeX Center. He's also a blockchain expert appointed to the World Economic Forum and the World Bank and has written extensively on the intersection of blockchain and antitrust law. Thibault, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I'm French, as you can hear. Uh, I've been living here in the Netherlands for five years. Um, I moved here mainly for the purpose of teaching competition law, which is still something that I do, but I became interested in blockchain around the time I moved here. Um, I had a few paragraphs in my PhD in 2016, and from that decided to write one, then two, three, four papers, and then a book. And, you know, I eventually, um, yeah, became stuck with the subject, and it's still something that uh, I pretty much research every day. So... Uh, that's a bit of the professional side. The less professional side, if you want a fun fact, is that I was trained to become a tennis player, professional one. Mm. And obviously, the fact that we are doing this podcast today is, I think, a good proof of the the fact that I that I failed. Right? Otherwise, I will probably be uh, preparing for Roland Garros as we speak. So, uh, if you are in Amsterdam and want to play tennis or want to talk about blockchain, send me an email, and it's always a pleasure to to do any. Any of those two. Good practice for a podcast because podcast is also about back and forth, right? In the same way as tennis. So perhaps, uh, you know, everything was leading to this moment. Yeah, well, everything makes sense, right? So that's that's what I will try to, to explain in uh, today's episode. Indeed, looking forward to it. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about that then. So you told us a little bit there about your uh, your your background um, and that you you had a few paragraphs and then papers and books and you've kept interested in this field of antitrust law and blockchain. But this is sounds to me like a personal interest as well as a professional interest. But how does somebody even begin to get interested in that? What what made you think, you know what, antitrust law, that's what I want to focus on? Oh, antitrust. So, um, well... You know, my mom is a psychologist, so I can talk about that for a very long time because I spent days, you know, trying to analyze the reasons why I wanted to study competition or antitrust. I think it comes from some interest in, in markets and the beauty of emergence there. And uh, I wanted to go to law school uh, for the sake of knowing the rules, right? So that if you know the rules, you know how to play the game and how maybe to escape them a little bit or tweak the rules. Uh, so that's why I decided to study antitrust. And my interest in blockchain was uh, or came from maybe a bad place um, in that I just wanted to have a few paragraphs in my PhD in which I dealt with the big tech companies thinking, well, if blockchain ever becomes something in 2016, this wasn't so obvious uh, obvious to me at the time. I just want to be able to say that this was in my PhD back in the days. And from that, I got invited to the OECD to present to competition agencies and eventually realized that when we talk about antitrust, it's antitrust, but trust in a sense of the trustees, the big corporations, right? It's not trust in a sense of, I trust you personally that you would do this and this. 
for me. And I came to realize that blockchain is a trust machine. So we could talk about whether it, it, it is trustless or trust cre creating or enhancing uh, technology. But I think that's the intersection between the two. Blockchain creates trust, supposedly get rid of the pilot in the cockpit. And if so, it means that you cannot indeed infringe antitrust law in which for the most part, you do need a pilot, right? To be able to, to direct a company in the direction that is illegal. So I think those two, the technology on the one hand and the legal system on the other, when it comes to antitrust are actually trying to achieve the very same objective, which is to free ecosystems and here economic ecosystems from any sort of coercion, right? So then of course there are limitations, but that's a common objective. And that's why I think those two antitrust and blockchain should be working together as opposed to doing what we do as lawyers. And this is what I started doing when writing my first papers, which is to only tackle the issues, right? Uh, and again, this is something I used to, or I like to say to some of my students, I say, well, if you go to law school, I won't arrive one day in a classroom and say, well, today we were going to study when everything goes according to the plan and when there is no legal issues, right? This is not where you can provide value to society. But in fact, I think that it might be something that as lawyers, you want to take into consideration. Why is that? Because when there is a problem, you want to address the problem, but potentially maintain the good coming out of the technology or an ecosystems. And I'm sometimes worried that in antitrust, we might address some of those challenges in a way that will destroy or uh, reduce the utility of technologies in here, blockchain. So we, we need to think about the positive use cases and keep that in mind at all time. Indeed. Okay, very clear. Let's take it back a little to basics, I suppose, in that sense. And to somebody, I mean, trust is a word which is is tricky. It has a, a, a sort of psychological meaning. We have a, an instinctive feeling, an emotional feeling about what it means to trust somebody or trust something. But then there's a very clear, specific legal definition of what trust means in different situations. So to someone who is not familiar with how these words are used in a legal context, what is antitrust exactly? What's antitrust law? Sure. So, so again, antitrust means trust in a sense of the trustees and the trustees were or are the big corporations such as created in the United States. Standard Oil was one of them. And eventually a US Senator, John Sherman, came up with the idea for different reasons. He was running as a president, um, then failed to be elected and eventually passed this, these legislations in uh, 1990. And the idea there was indeed to not to get rid of economic power and to necessarily um, downscale the size of the big corporations, but at least to control those corporations in the sense that they should be, of course, able to put out a product or service on the market, but they should do that in fair terms. And so antitrust came out of this idea that uh, it's okay for you to be a big corporation, it's okay for you to offer products and services, but if you do so, we may want to maintain the possibility for other corporations and other entities to enter the market and compete with you. And so to be very concrete, there are two main type of, of practices that are prohibited under antitrust laws all across the world uh, in more than 150 countries. Those are pretty much the same everywhere. The, on the one hand, you do have collusions. 
Here, I mean at least two entities coming together to agree on how to behave on the market. A typical example are two comp is two companies agreeing on the price of a product and not to compete and reduce prices. The other type of uh, practice that is prohibited are uh, the monopolization practices, or as we call them in Europe, abuses of dominance. Here, you only have one company that is so powerful that a company can indeed eliminate competition uh, by implementing a bunch of practices. An example would be, I'm so powerful because I control the operating system that I can force you to also acquire some other softwares, which means that if you are in the, the business of providing softwares, uh, it, it becomes much harder for you to access to, to customers because by default, they already have a software. So why would, they get, why would they get another one, right? So this is a type of practice that are or could be prohibited. Right. So people will remember famous cases involving Microsoft, for example, as a, as a fairly good examples of that being you. Yeah, that's one. So indeed, and there are two versions of that in the US in 2001. The Department of Justice came after Microsoft for tying the operating system and Internet Explorer. And we have a EU side of this case, but here we tackled, uh, or the European Commission tackled the tying of the operating system with Windows Media Player, right? And you could see the limitation of the case already. The European Commission was under the impression that <clears throat> Windows Media Player will stay there forever because it was offered by default, when in fact, just a couple of years after the case, well, no one, I suppose, was uh, ever using Windows Media Player ever again, right? So those cases are very hard and complex. And to understand what's at stake and how to address and how to come up with a legal solution, you do need to understand first the economics behind and also the technical uh, characteristics of the product that you are trying to tackle, which is exactly what you have in blockchain, right? If you only look at the tech and regulate the tech without understanding the economic impact, uh, that's the recipe for, for a big mess. So something we should not try even at home. Okay, well, let's talk about that a little bit more. So like you say, if you regulate the tech, which is actually what we spend quite a bit of time on this podcast talking about with things like MICA and its interaction with MIFID2 and AMLD and things like that. So the regulation of the tech is very much ongoing. You're saying we need to also take into consideration, regulators need to take into consideration the regulation of the, the business itself. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the kinds of things they should be thinking about or some issues that you see that maybe are not being addressed? Sure. So, you know, that's something that is, I wouldn't say absolutely unique to blockchain, but pretty unique in a sense of the the willingness that we have in Europe to regulate the actual technology of blockchain is when the technology is so young, right, is, is something that I do not witness when it comes to other technologies. I'll give you an example. Uh, the European Parliament just voted uh, the final draft of the AI Act, so Artificial Intelligence Act, in which there, there are no discussions regarding the, the type of training that you may want to implement when it comes to, to machine learning, right? So regardless of whether your AI system is an expert system or supervised learning, deep learning, it's all the same. It's all being considered as being AI. And then the European Commission and the Parliament are regulating the use cases of AI. Now, I think they should it, it can be improved by looking at the, the functioning of AI, but this is not what, what those policymakers are doing. As opposed to what we see in blockchain, 
We've seen failed initiatives to regulate the consensus of blockchain, uh, but I'm pretty convinced, if you want, we can bet that in 10 years from now, uh, the type of mechanisms to validate transactions will be regulated by the European Parliament. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that proof of work will somehow be, um, if not entirely banned, but um, you know, um, at least uh, incentivized not to be to be used, and so on and so forth. Uh, Mika, Mifi, two, all of those regulations are indeed not only trying to regulate the ecosystem and the business um, uh, aspects of blockchain, but also the functioning of the actual technology, which is something that worries me for a very simple reason. Looking at that from a Darwinian perspective, what you see is that at first, the different species of a technology compete with each other, right? And this is what we see, I would argue now with blockchain. You have permission blockchain, public permissionless, public uh, permissions, private blockchains, they all compete. And it's hard to say <clears throat> which one will emerge out of that competition, right? I mean, I have a personal opinion on that, but I, I can't tell you, I know for a fact that private blockchain won't exist in five years from now. And yet we are, and by we, I mean the policymakers and the regulators, uh, interfering in the process and making choices and not letting the technology develop as it should. The problem doing that is that if you choose one technology that is inferior for certain use cases compared to what it could have been with a proper competition without regulation, the day that technology will compete with other technologies, uh, you may see that it won't be good enough to survive. So it's and it's hard it's hard for the policymakers sometimes to conceive because let's say you prohibit uh, proof of work or proof of stake. Um, it's unlikely that all blockchain will disappear in just one day. But over time, this may create a long-lasting effect and reduce the willingness for someone to use blockchain to develop, to join the ecosystem, and therefore will benefit the big banks, right, for, for example. But it's hard to precisely compute the effect of your regulation, and yet I'm afraid this is something we should try to at least take into consideration. So again, the survival of the technology, uh, or to put it differently, having pro-innovation regulation I think should be a number one priority for EU policymakers and elsewhere uh, as well, by the way. The pro-innovation legislation, I like that. Yes, I suppose I can also see some, what, what pops into my mind is some of the, maybe the more consumer-facing levels, like the standardization of power sockets, right? Where I see a similar thing. There's no real consideration taken for the fact that different companies are proposing different standards because not just because they want a business edge, but also because they genuinely think this technology is better. And by forcing everyone to use the same standard, you're, you're removing the ability for them to play around with with new ideas, which, of course, yeah. companies like Apple famously do all the time, is uh, trying out new things and seeing what sticks, abandoning what doesn't. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it is not to say that we shouldn't somehow regulate how many times you can change, let's say, the charger, mm. uh, the cables, or you know, this, this, or or whether or not you should announce <clears throat> month before that you will change it so that competitors have the time to develop something compatible. But indeed, what we have now in Europe is that you have to use USB-C, yeah. uh, which means that the willingness to come up with a USB-E or F or you know X 
um, is is gone. Uh, so they would say that every five years or so they will come together and revise the standard. But for five years, you know for a fact that if you come up with a better alternative, you can't actually use that in your smartphone, and you have to trust the policymakers for. Uh, making the right choice in a couple of years and implementing the best standards, you know, at that time. So this, again, coming from a Darwinian perspective, is actually the type of regulation that is killing competition, that is killing the survival of the fittest idea, and uh, potentially, I think, not putting us where we want to be when it comes to competing with China and the United States and, and other continents. Indeed. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And um, yeah, so in that sense, I just have a slight segue because you actually touched upon this in one of your answers. So when we were seeing the final drafts of MICA coming along, I think a lot of people predicted that there was going to be a flat out proof of work ban as part of MICA. And then when it was passed, it was nowhere to be seen except some hints that it was being thought about. Were you surprised it didn't come through? And follow on question, do you expect to see something like this maybe in MICA 2 or some future redraft? Um, I no, I wasn't surprised. Um, I I knew that some members of the European Parliament wanted to go that way, but that they didn't have any support there. Um, and the same, by the way, we've seen in the United States, right? It has been, and I forgot the name of those senators, um, put on the table that uh, proof of work should be should be banned. Um, I I wasn't surprised. Now that being said. Um, are we about to see some uh, technical standards or ban being implemented in the coming month and years? I would say yes, absolutely. Um, so this is where, again, I'm worried that we will we won't make the right choices. And you know, it is not to say that we shouldn't try to harmonize and to come up with more compatibilities in the in the entire ecosystem. I actually wrote a paper on that with a. Vitalik back a few a few days a few years ago where we we p pretty much you know explained that the law has a very important role to play, um, but to to quote a, a great economist John Tirol actually who um, is a Nobel laureate, uh, what he said is that standards become a good idea once the industry actually you know came up with with the one solution that is acceptable to to everyone out there uh, but what you do not want to do is at the early stages of technology decide a top-down standard based on a few meetings that you may have with some players in the ecosystem so um standards when it comes to the consensus um i think are far away from us now of course you know you may always have a, a, a bad surprise um, in in the next ten years, yes, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be too surprised if proof of work was to be prohibited, at least in Europe. Uh, but but this is not all there is, right? So um, in in Mika and Mifi two, you see that here and there there are create incentives being created to design blockchain certain ways, um, and uh, I I would say that this is again not what we want. Yeah, indeed. A lot of excellent points there, including, as you said there, the, the, the concept, even the concept of those few meetings the regulators have had. Who have you met with? It's going to shape very, uh, very differently your perspectives when you come out of the meeting, because, of course, 
any company can make a very strong logical sounding case that their technology is the way to go and it's the only obvious way that this whole thing can be built right and then yeah. you can come out of that meeting of course accidentally with the same opinion based on who took your call who you i mean think about it who, who you have an email address for or who can be bothered to come to brussels and have a meeting you can have massive impact for the whole industry i think it's a really really interesting point um and so you know, on that, if I may, uh, I'm, I'm not complaining because I never got invited to the European Commission or the European Parliament. Being no, a no. professor of law in Europe, right, I, I, I get that access and I enjoyed that very much. Um, but I think more people should get this type of access uh, when they do consultations and people send contributions. I would love to see a... Um, a note explaining what they got, you know, and the tendencies in all of those contributions that they received. And quite a few months ago, it was proposed that the, the agenda of the members of the European Parliament should be uh, become public to, to some degree, or at least that the meetings they have with the companies and individuals should be publicized. And this was rejected. And I see no reasons why those members who are elected by us should be in a situation except for security and cybersecurity reasons, sure. But other, other than that, why can't we access you know, their agenda and, and see who they encounter and try to compute how this influence the type of legislations they come up with? So maybe something to reintroduce in the coming, in the coming month. Well, it's a standard, right? You're an academic. When you write a paper, you don't just put uh, data and information in there and then not source it. Right. You can't just say, oh, yeah, it's just something I, you know, it's just what I know. Right. You put your sources down, you put your references down, you do a bibliography. Right. You show your work, you show your evidence. And that's what we should expect from from the regulators, too, I think. You know, that's but that's a very profound point, because the academics, we are peer reviewed. And if you do yes. publish in a place that is not peer reviewed, it's pretty much worth nothing for my academic development. Now, the policymakers to some degree, you can make a point RP reviewed because they have some elections. Uh, but of course, if you vote two thousand different rules and standards over the term, um, you know, maybe people will peer review what you've done based on one or two that are very easy to conceive, but not certainly not the entirety of your or your of your track record. So that leads me to actually something that I proposed in a paper a few weeks ago, which is something that I called proof of vigilance. And the idea there will be to say, okay, you want to pass a new legislation, let's say to regulate blockchain because you want to reduce carbon emission, right? Or the impact it has on the environment. I know that's a big one. Sure. Okay. Now you explain to me what is precisely the objective. That's one. Two, how will you compute whether or not your legislation can achieve that objective? So don't just tell me I want to reduce the uh, impact blockchain as in the environment, but tell me precisely how you will measure whether or not your regulation is effective. Three, make the data public, right? So you will put so certainly some sensors to try to document whether or not you are effective. Make that public so that with re researchers and and you know the the industry can also assess the quality of your data. And four or five, um, uh, then explain to me what are the threshold and the mechanisms that you will put in place to potentially lower your regulation, get rid of your regulation if it doesn't work, or maybe you know deepen the, the, the enforcement aspect of your regulation. And if you do all that, then I will be indeed convinced that you are peer reviewed by what's happening in reality. 
And I would say that the policymakers, they have a lot to gain in doing that, right? Because if indeed their rules and standards are effective, um, well, you know, at least that's, that's easy for them to, to defend and potentially to introduce a new one in the future because they have some, some good track record there. Uh, so I think eventually we're going to have to, to come up with these sorts of mechanisms to, to make the role and the actions of the policymakers more transparent and accountable to, to all of us. Yeah. Well, I can just say that um, not only in blockchain, but peer review of government policy is something I would like to see everywhere. Uh, this is a fantastic idea. All right. Let's, um, let's just jump into the uh, unpopular opinion. Dibbo, what's an unpopular opinion that you have about the current blockchain space? Sure, I will answer your question, but first let me ask you a question. Did you ever have a guess with two unpopular opinions on a podcast? Not that they've said out loud, but if you're going to say them out loud, you shall be a pioneer. All right, sounds good. Uh, okay, number one, I would say that most blockchains are not decentralized. Uh, by the way, there are some initiatives being um, uh, developed as I speak to try to come up with a with a ratio to measure decentralization, which is something we need. But the reason why I'm saying that is because I think most of the definitions that we have of decentralizations are wrong. Most people would define that as the as the ability. Uh, to act freely, right, or not being coerced by somebody or someone else. And the definition that we use, actually, which is something that is very deep embedded into the rules and standards, especially in France, is the ability to be part of an ecosystem where you can not act freely, but decide for yourself where you can act freely. So I'll give you an example. If you're part of a state that tells you that as a parent, you can decide for yourself the type of education you want to give your kids and the type of health that you want to give your kid and so on and so forth, then you are part of a decentralized ecosystem because you have those zones of freedom, you know, education and health, and there you will make a decision, well, I want to educate my kid this way or that way. Now, for most of the blockchain, what you see is that people may have the freedom, let's say the core developers, the miners, uh, they may have the freedom to code the software one way, to validate some transactions or not, but they do not have the freedom to choose all other zones of actions where they may choose for themselves whether or not they want to do something. So that's in popular opinion number one. Most blockchains are not decentralized. The second one I would say uh, is uh, I know that code is law and I would agree with that meaning that the way by which you design your ecosystem will actually trigger some behaviors, um, specific behaviors. Uh, but I would say that it is highly insufficient. And I know this is not super popular to hear that you do need the rules and standards and that even though you may be a crypto anarchist, you have to rely on the government. And I give you just one example, and that ties to my work on antitrust. You may code your blockchain all you want, if you do need to advertise your new product to get new users, and if for the purpose of being attractive, you do need to use the big tech companies' advertisement platforms, let's say Google, Amazon, Facebook, and so on and so forth, again, all you can do is hope for the best that they will give you access to their platform. And the code of your actual product has nothing 
to do when it comes to their willingness to give you that access, right? And this is where you may need antitrust because if they refuse to give you access, you may have a case in saying that there is a refusal to deal. So this idea that code is law is true, but I would say code is law and insufficient. And what you need is actually those rules and standards, even though you may have a strong dislike for the government and the legal institution. I suppose not too popular. Uh, and uh, I would expect a few emails from uh, listeners, but please feel free to engage. So there you have it. Not one, but two, um, not unpopular, but deeply unpopular opinions. <laughs> Let's go back into this issue of the intersection of uh, antitrust law and, and blockchain and talk about some specific regulatory issues that you think need to be addressed uh, sooner rather than later. Sure. Um, so I will start from uh, a space that I've been investigating in, in recent weeks and that I already mentioned quite a few times. That is the idea that, sure, the rules and standards can be used against you, right? So let's say you finance some terrorism and we find out about it and you used some crypto. Well, yeah, the, the law here will be against you, right? Uh, but it could also be used in a way that is not only friendly, but necessary for your ecosystem to, to develop. And I'll give you an example when it comes to the relationship between the big tech companies and Web3, right? Or the crypto economy. Um, what you see is that for most, if not all, as I speak in 2023 of the crypto project to develop, you would need access to two different types of infrastructure. The first one is or are the infrastructures that are necessary for your product to function. Uh, here, I have in mind access to cloud solutions. We see that pretty much 50% of some of the big blockchains are stored on AWS. That's Amazon, right? Uh, that's also the computational power. Uh, it might be also that you do need access to some sort of hardware, right? If you want to provide a contactless payment solution, let's say a Web3 one, uh, if you do not have access to the NFC antenna of the smartphone manufacturer, then that's it. You can't just, you know, bypass that and make it work contactless. Uh, so the adoption will, will decrease there and so on and so forth. It might be that uh, for people to be able to buy NFTs, you need to have access to uh, the API of Apple for the company not to take 30% of all of the sales and so on and so forth. So that's one. You need access to the big tech company's infrastructure for you to function. The second one is what I alluded to already, access to their infrastructures when it comes to adoption. And here I do have in mind um, the, the use cases, for instance, Minecraft, a game owned by Microsoft banned the NFTs a year ago, right? So this will decrease the adoption. Um, Facebook announced that in their virtual world horizon, you, uh, would have been able to use your own NFT. And then eventually they, a few, a few weeks ago, decided not to pursue this idea, but this would have increased whether or not we like it, the value of your NFT, because you could do something more with it than just having that on a, on a wallet. Uh, the ability to advertise on YouTube. We know that this company, again here, Google has a history of uh, prohibiting blockchain Web3 based accounts and then apologizing 
in public and reinstating those those public channels. So you see that there are there is a tendency here for anti-competitive practices and so on and so forth, right? So you do need access to those. Uh, it might be that the blockchain ecosystem will be strong enough in let's say five to 10 years so that you don't even need access to the Web2 infrastructure. But as I speak, I think you do. And in fact, you know, just ask yourself this question. Have you ever seen an, a Web3 project without a Twitter account? I'm sure there are some, some examples uh, of that, but this is, this is very rare, right? And so this is where antitrust has a very important role to play. And I am working with competition agencies in trying to, to foster this type of mindset, which is something that is not usual for a lawyer, where you are indeed raised as a lawyer to use the law in a confrontational way. This is most of what we do when it comes to the big tech companies, the Web2, right? They do not pursue the same objective as the policymakers most of the time, and therefore this creates, you know, uh, some sort of tensions. When it comes to blockchain and Web3, I think most of what the ecosystem is trying to achieve is actually going in the direction that the antitrust agencies are also pursuing, meaning uh, improving consumer welfare, getting rid of centralized zone of controls, decentralizing the economy, and so on and so forth. And so we need to have not only a confrontational mindset, but also a cooperative one. So that will be a very con concrete example of where I think antitrust has a very important role to play, which means that of course, I'm not asking all of you to go to law school and take, you know, very specialized training in competition law. But if you are just aware of the type of practices or things that may be implemented against you, send an email to your national competition agencies. There is such an agency in every country in the world and do explain, you know, what's happening to you and the agency will investigate. Uh, worst case scenario, nothing will happen. Uh, best case scenario, well, the agency will undertake action against the company that is trying to destroy your business, right? So have this, this mindset again of using the law as something that may help the, the development of your business. Great, that's fantastic to have some advice for people out there because I think a lot of people may be working on these projects. You know, Some of these teams are quite small, one, one or two developers and may not have even occurred to them because it seems so obvious sometimes. Like, yeah, of course a company can can set a policy and say we don't advertise Web3 services. Of course they can do that. It's their right. But as you well pointed out, we have antitrust and competition laws for exactly the purpose to stop this happening. So that's a fantastic bit of advice. And, you know, on that, I'm also working on, on the project entitled Computational Antitrust, in which I'm trying to to foster the use of AI and blockchain within the competition agencies. We have 65 of those competition agencies. I can tell you that literally all of them will be answering your emails. So you don't even have to send a proper complaint, right? It's not as going to the police. You go on their websites, all of them have a section where they say something's happening to you, just send us an email and start engaging with them. And at least, you know, it will you will increase their understanding of the technology and they may indeed identify some sort of practices and you may get money back, right? If you suffered from some sort of anti-competitive behaviors uh, and at the very least the practice being stopped, which, which may help you. So feel free to engage and actually do so if you have any questions because they will come back to you in a matter of days. And that's great because 
at least in my mind, that loops back into what you said earlier. We mentioned about the need for regulators to have these conversations, these people that they can call, these resources that they can draw on when they're putting this legislation together. And of course, if there is a stack of interaction sitting in a file somewhere between Web3 companies and, and, and competition boards, then that's that helps, doesn't it, to build that understanding, to build that evidence and give them the kind of background and confidence they need to, to write this legislation properly in the future. Yeah, indeed. And if if you are concerned about the fact that they may, because of your email, be aware that you exist and therefore undertake action against you, just think about how bad this would be for the agency in terms of signaling, right? This would be the end of the the agency receiving emails from companies and complaints, because if they do so and start doing it with you uh, and you publicize that, that's pretty much the end of it. And the agency have will be in a position where all they could do then would be to be proactive and identify practices themselves, which they don't have the budget for, right? 90% of all the cases are cases based on some sort of emails or complaints that they receive, which is very precious to them. So do not be worried that the agency will start investigating your business because of your email. This is at the very least extremely unlikely to happen. Yeah, and it's not really their purview, is it? As you said, this, these agencies have very strict remits of what they're supposed to investigate, what they're supposed to spend their limited time and resources on. And to me, this doesn't sound like what they're supposed to be doing. No, yeah. no, indeed. Okay, so let's let's move um, past these uh, issues that we're looking at at the moment, and let's assume for a second that these can be resolved, either in a good way or a bad way, depending how we want to look at it. How do you see the future of finance say we're looking maybe five ten years from now and what role does does blockchain and other technologies that you've mentioned have in shaping what that future looks like um i would see but again i'm biased going back to your very first question why am i interested in competition law uh, and the psychological reasons behind i would see a competing space in which the big banks, the Web2 companies do exist. Um, I am not of the opinion that maybe a third one, that the DAOs will take over any form of uh, existing corporations uh, for you know transaction cost-based reasons. Uh, but I will also see that there is indeed a space for blockchain to, to exist and for DeFi to, to provide something to users, but only if DeFi retains what differentiates itself from what exists already. So, and I, and I know this is hard and I'm aware that, you know, you may have to consider balances between decentralization on the one hand and the, the, the willingness to be more efficient on the other and to move quickly and impose decisions, you know, kind of the, the Steve Jobs mindset where you can actually anticipate what people want. You can only do so or actually you can easily do so if you are fully centralized. But if you go in this direction, the day you will start competing for real with, let's say, the big banks, why would people use your centralized Web3 DeFi application as opposed to the one of the big bank? I, I see no reason why, except for you know a, a bunch of users for ideological reasons, but for, for when it comes to, to scale, I see no reason why they would do so. So I would say the only way to survive is to be decentralized in, in a way that I've defined. And it may be that it, it is harder to scale because of that, uh, but yet on the long run, I would say absolutely central. And some I know 
will go in this direction and will, I would say, coexist with centralized centralized life forms of uh, finance and, and, and Web3, generally speaking. Indeed. So keep your spirit. Keep, keep what makes you unique. Indeed. That's a great piece of advice. And that actually brings into the last question, which is exactly what I was going to ask. I would say that would be your... The, the main, in my opinion, that sounds like that would be the main takeaway from yourself to individuals and companies that are so looking to stay ahead of the curve in this uh, rapidly evolving landscape. Uh, but perhaps uh, one or two other pieces of advice that you might recommend from your unique perspective. <sighs> to stay ahead of the curve. Indeed. Um, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I would say um, do not do not obsess over what your competitors are doing. I would say, and if you look at management literature and empirical studies, this is a recipe for failure. Do obsess about your own customers and your, your own uh, vision of what success might be. Uh, but again, certainly not changing your behaviors just because one of your competitors introduced a new feature and, and therefore you know, you, you may feel forced to do so in order to compete, but but I would say don't do that. So, and again, that doesn't mean that you should not be aware of your environment, aware that you have competitors. If you don't have any competitors, by the way, this might not be so good, right? Because if you have such a great idea, why would you be the only one? So you will have most likely competitors, they will do stuff against you, but uh, if you only adjust to what they do without a vision, I think you, you won't make it so. Uh, again, stay unique. I think you you summarized that pretty well. Thank you. Okay, so we've had a great conversation today with uh, Thibaut Schreppel, and we talked about the need for regulators to take into account the business case as well as a technology case when coming up with regulations, the importance of understanding where these regulations come from in terms of what conversations the regulators have had with which companies building which technology, the need for Web3 companies to be able to get and to some extent demand access to services currently held by companies that are mostly could be defined as Web2, the uh, usefulness and importance to your business of reaching out to antitrust agencies and contacting them about issues that you find when you're trying to promote your business and how that itself can contribute back to the general understanding that regulators have about the business. And finally, Thibault recommended strongly that do not obsess over what your competitors are doing, obsess over what you're doing and make that unique value proposition that you have the core to moving your business forward in the future. Thank you so much, Thibault. I've uh, really enjoyed having the conversation with you today. My name's Ryan King. This was the Internet of Assets, the podcast about the not-so-distant future of finance. And thanks to everyone for listening.